Those of you that are watching through the live stream, welcome. Uh, many of you know me. For those of you that don't, my name is Josh Fowler, and I will be your tour guide today in Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 27. And as crazy as it may sound, three verses are going to take us the evening. It might even carry us into next week. No, I'm just kidding. We'll get through it tonight. Now, just kind of a front load to warn you, there are a lot of scriptures that coincide with tonight's passage that we're going to be talking about. Um, this will be interactive. I will be asking questions. If you answer, I'm going to repeat it because you may not be picked up on the mic, and I'd like the folks that might be streaming so that they can kind of hear maybe what the question or the answer was, if that makes any sense. So, back to the scriptures. There's a lot of them. You can jot down the uh, address, but if you try to uh, flip through them through your Bible, you're probably going to set the pages on fire, okay? Because we've got a lot to cover in a little amount of time. So before we get started, please bow your heads with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to dive into your word uh, with my family, Father, with your people, with the church. Father, please open your word up to us in a mighty way and speak to our hearts. Get me out of the way. Move me out of the way, Father, and speak. Father, we love you, and we thank you for loving us first by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, for it's in his most holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Romans 11, 25 through 27. We'll start out, we'll read them uh, all together, and then we'll, start, then we'll start kind of dissecting, okay? All right, verse 25. For I do not want you, brothers and sisters, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved, just as it, it, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So we've been in a One Another series. I don't really think that this kind of fits into that series. Uh, when Pastor Kevin asked me if I wouldn't mind teaching, I told him that was fine. Where, where was I or where did he need me to be? And he said, you know what? Just preach what you feel like God's laid on your heart. And so I told him about this particular passage because at the time I was kind of wrestling with it and I kind of shared with him what I had learned and uh, kind of the journey that I'd been on. And he said, you know what? Teach that. So I don't know if it really ties into the series. You might be able to see a correlation, uh, but it's going to be a little bit different, and it's hard to kind of front load and give some context when we're almost to the end of Romans. So I'm going to do my best. So as we look at these verses, before we dive into the text, it's important that we understand Paul's audience. Who was Paul talking to in this passage? He was talking to Romans, the Roman church, Okay, I got Gentiles and Jews. Actually, in this particular section, he was speaking specifically to Jews. Okay, so, so some of the answers were Jews, Gentiles, the Roman church, and the answer is yes. Okay, all the above. But in this particular section, he's really zeroing in on the Jews. So understand that at this time in history, the New Testament was non-existent. 
Paul's letter was penned around 56 AD, so the, Roman, the letter to the Romans was penned around 56 AD. But the canonization of the New Testament didn't really occur until about 40 to 43 years later, around 96 to 99 AD. So at this point, this was simply a letter, okay? The New Testament wasn't around yet. It hadn't been completely put together. So if your audience is primarily Jewish, where would you bring them back to, or where would you teach them from? Old Testament. Exactly right, the Old Testament. You want to take them back to what they know, right? And a lot of the education was uh, oral, through stories. Some of them may have had the opportunity to study, maybe under a rabbi, or, or be taught. But for the most part, it was oral history. And it was pounded into their frontal lobes as kids, okay? They knew the Old Testament, right? They knew the books. They knew the prophets. So that's what, that's what Paul took them to. He took them to the Old Testament. So tonight, just as Paul said to his Jewish audience at the time, I don't want you to be uninformed. So we're going to look at some Old Testament Scripture. Actually, we're going to look at a lot of Old Testament Scripture that while Paul does not refer to directly here, it certainly was within the understanding of his listeners and of his readers, okay? So, can we all agree that the Jews were or are both God's chosen people? Can we agree on that? Okay, I got an emphatic yes. And you're absolutely right. The answer is yes. Well, why is that? Why were the Jews God's chosen people? Because he chose them, that's absolutely. But that's what we know, you know. And again, it doesn't matter what Josh's opinion is. It doesn't matter what the audience opinion is. It's what does Scripture tell us. So, again, don't try to turn there. Let's just look at the Word. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7 should be popping up on the screen, I hope. Now, I put all these slides in, so if there is a hiccup or a mess up, that's on me, okay? That's on me. Let's not kill the, kill the slide guy, all right? That one's going to be on me. So Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, and my notes are not in order. Stand by, unless I completely missed one. And it looks like I did. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm going to put my glasses on. I'm going to read it with you. All right, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So as we front load this, a lot of this text, actually you can reread in the Psalms. Now just jot this down, it's not on the slides, but Psalm 105, 106, and 107, they're, they're fairly long Psalms, but man are they good. Oh wow, they're so good. They show us God's eternal faithfulness in Psalm 105, God's joy in the forgiveness of Israel's sins in, in Psalm 106, and then Israel's thanksgiving to the Lord for his great works of deliverance in Psalm 107. But what about Gentiles? 
How do they fit in this? Well, so glad you asked. Let's look at Genesis 22:18. I can't believe I messed my notes up here, y'all. Stand by. Yep, 22:18. I'm just going to again read it from the screen here. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So here we have Jews and Gentiles based on what key word? What would we zero in on on that scripture? Nations. All the nations. Okay? It doesn't just say Israel. All right? It says all nations. So here we have Jews and Gentiles. Jews are God's chosen children. Right? We were all in agreement with that when I asked that question. What are Gentiles? Non-Jews. So God's adopted children. Right? God's adopted children. So technically they're chosen too. So we have God's chosen children, but even through adoption, God still chose. Right? So now that we've distinguished Jew and Gentile, what would you say is the great equalizer? Now when I use this word, equalizer... Um, it's something that kind of levels the playing field here. Uh, otherwise, uh, it evens out discrepancies between two things. What would you say is the great equalizer for all humankind? Say again. Sin. I would agree. Death. Okay. I, I really thought death. Would, I mean, because really, we all die, right? You know, you want some, let me drop some, some truth bombs on you. Ten out of ten people, die. That's science. That's right. I know you're amazed. But no, so I thought that death would be it too, but again, it doesn't matter what I think. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 12.13. Ecclesiastes 12.13 says, the, and 14, the conclusion when everything has been heard is fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. Verse 14, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So, some agreed that death was the great equalizer. Is death the great equalizer? According to Solomon, no. Judgment was. Judgment is the great equalizer. Unbelievers will find themselves eventually at the great white throne judgment. And this isn't on the slide. You can put this in your notes. The great white throne judgment is Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And believers will find themselves before the judgment seat of Christ, also known as the Bema, okay, or the Bema seat. And that's in 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 15 and 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. Now, the Bema seat's a little bit interesting because it's really not a seat at all. If you picture like the Olympic Games, you know how you have the different levels right, for the medal ceremony, that was kind of the bema. It was the top, right? It's where the awards were given, okay? That's where believers will find themselves. They're still going to be judged. Their works will be judged. You know, I tell people all the time, you know, when we end up in heaven, every single one of us is going to smell like smoke because everything's going to get burned up. All the stuff that was worthless, you know, that wasn't worth our time and our effort, that we thought was good, we had the best intentions, it's all going to go up in flames. It's only the stuff that he deems worthy that matters. And so, yeah, we'll end up in heaven, but, buddy, we're going to smell like we've been camping. All right? All right, so uh, Hosea 14.9. 
Who are considered wise in Hosea 14.9? Well, let's read it. Hosea 14.9 says, Therefore, make sure I'm in the right here. Yeah, therefore. Nope, not the right scripture. Whoever's wise, let him understand these things. Whoever's discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them. But wrongdoers will what? They're going to stumble. So who are considered wise? Who are considered discerning, according to Hosea? Those that know the word? Those that choose the Lord's ways above their own? Every day we're faced with, you know, 11,000 different decisions. Am I going to hit the snooze button? Okay. You know, <laughs> always, right? So, yeah, am, am I going to, you know, drive the speed limit? You know, am I going to drink one cup of coffee or two? You know, and then the list goes on and on to more important stuff, right? But we make decisions, hundreds if not thousands of them, daily. The question then comes down to, Am I going to do, am I going to choose my way or his way? I mean, it's like with my children. They say, well, I don't want to do that. Okay, that's cool. You're going to get a whipping, <laughs> you know, and then you're going to do it. <laughs> Either way, it's going to get done. The question is, are you going to get a whipping? That's what it all comes down to. And it's no different than us. You know, I can't tell you how many times God's had to bend me over his knee and give me a good you know, taken to the woodshed type whooping. And then he sets me down and says, okay, try again. And it's like, okay, I know that's your way, Lord. And I know it's my way. Why do we even have to decide? Okay, we know how painful disobedience is. We read throughout Old Testament history of the, the Jews wandering around, going on this roller coaster ride. And it's like, these people are idiots. And then I go and I look at myself in the mirror. Like, you're an idiot. Okay, because we do the same thing. We're on this roller coaster of, of, you know, being obedient to disobedience. You know, me and the kids, we're going through Daniel right now. And it's interesting when you, when you study God's Word and things open up that you, I, I can't tell you how many times I've read Daniel, but things are opening up in Daniel that I've never seen before or caught on to. And one of them is the, the, um, the, uh, the constant repetition of obedience versus disobedience. I mean, beginning in chapter 1. We're only in chapter 7. But beginning in chapter 1, you can see, okay, obedience you know, equals blessing. Disobedience, not so much. All right? So, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're faced with these decisions. So those that choose the Lord's ways, according to Hosea, those are the ones that are considered wise. But now... You've either tuned out by now, and I'm watching you, Craig. Keep your eyes open. Okay, Josh, well, what's your point here? We haven't even gotten to the text yet. Well, what's your point? I'm so glad you asked. But my point doesn't matter. Again, my point doesn't matter, and what matters is what does the Word say? All right, so Romans 25 through 27, beginning in verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Who are the brethren here? Say again. Christians, Jews, okay? The brethren here in this context is the Jews. 
But not only is he talking about Jews or talking to the Jews, he doesn't want them to be uninformed about what? The mystery. Well, what is the mystery? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. So I've, I've got the mystery is the mystery. Well, okay. Jesus Christ. It is, but he answers the mystery. It's blindness. In, in the next verse, it's blindness. And not just any blindness, the blindness on a national scale. Now, all those answers are correct. Oh, Mike here keeps slipping. Is that better? So, yes, it is the Gentiles being grafted in because that was something that they could not understand. How could this possibly be? We're the chosen, you know? And you got this guy over here that we're not even supposed to throw our crumbs to, all right? But that's part of it. But it's this blindness. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. I'm going to figure this out, y'all. I know it's in here. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. I'm still not finding it. I wonder if it gets stuck here. All right. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not stare at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it was removed in Christ. But to this day, whoever, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Wow, that's, that's pretty awesome. But do you remember when Jesus was crucified and the earthquake happened and it broke the foundations of the temple? What else tore? You remember? The veil, floor to ceiling. Now, I don't remember what the dimensions were, but I know that it was pretty tall ceilings, okay? So if you pictured a curtain going from the ceiling here of the church, you know, super, super heavy, right? Because it was a heavy, heavy piece of fabric. And it tore from top to bottom because, remember, it blocked the Holy of Holies, right? And only the, the high priest that was chosen by Lot was able to go in and offer the sacrifices, well, that veil was now torn, meaning God is now approachable by all. All right? How beautiful is that? How cool is that? So was this mystery of a contradiction of God? I'm sorry, let me back up. Was this mystery a contradiction in God's dealings with Israel as his chosen people? Is God contradicting himself? Never. He can't. You know, we, we hear people, well, Scripture's contradicting itself. No, it's not. It, not if you understand it. No, absolutely not. not. Not at all. He foresaw. God foresaw this. And it's, and it's actually predicted it through the prophets. Isaiah 29.10 says, For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets, and he has covered your heads, the seers. The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book which when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, please read this, he will say, I cannot, because it is sealed. Then he will look 
see here. Let me back up. And then he will say, I cannot. Then he, the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, saying, Please read this. And he will say, I cannot read. So that's from an Old Testament standpoint. Well, let's look at Romans 11, 7 through 10. And I'm sorry, y'all, my notes are all discombobulated up here. What then? What Israel, what, what Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So, as we read these two, it's not a contradiction. God knew it was going to occur, right? He knew so much, in fact, that he foretold it through the prophets, but they couldn't quite see it yet, not even now. So just as, oh, let me back up, is that blindness, is it permanent? Is that blindness permanent for Israel? I got Amber saying no. Heather saying no. It's a partial, absolutely. No, absolutely not. Well, how do we know this? Exactly. So not only from this, this scripture, we can also back up to Romans 11.5. And Romans 11.5 says, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious what? Whose choice? God's choice, right? God's choice. So just as Romans eleven twenty three stated that the Jews will be stored, Jeremiah thirty two thirty seven says this: Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. So the mystery doesn't refer to some puzzle where we have to use reason to piece together the clues and to figure out what's going on. And contrary to the mystery religions of Paul's day, Gnosticism especially, or, you know, this might be a toe-stepper, but you can talk to me afterwards, Freemasons of our day, okay? Secret knowledge, there is no secret knowledge in God's Word. Okay, there's none there. It's, it's not secret knowledge that only the initiated circle understands. Okay, so consider the mystery. Justification by faith alone. This wasn't some new concept. It was actually revealed throughout the Old and New Testaments. Genesis 15, 6 says this, Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. He believed in the Lord. And they're talking about Abraham. Romans 4.13 says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The other portion of the mystery is Gentiles would be included. Isaiah 11.10 says, Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Also in Isaiah 19, 24, and 25, say in that day Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, of my hands, or I'm, yeah, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. That's interesting that he would place Egypt and Assyria before Israel. I thought that was very interesting. And then, you know, it, it talking about Israel's like the third wheel. All right? 
I mean, it's, it, this was a very challenging passage. And we haven't even really gotten to the hard part yet. Okay, so, but wait, there's more. It's like a bad infomercial. But these truths could not be seen with clarity. Okay? God was like throwing it at them and showing them and such, but they just, they didn't, they didn't have the glasses to see it. And it was until Christ. Christ, when Christ came, he brought them all into focus. And then it became, they didn't want to see it. You know, the first covenant was written on stone. The second covenant on flesh and on hearts. So is God powerful enough to harden nations? Yeah, absolutely. He's God. He can do what he wants. You know, when he wants, how he wants. Is he powerful enough to lift that hardening? Again, yeah, he's God. He can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. The answer is an emphatic yes. Romans 11, 23 and 24. I think, let's see, yeah, all right. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to what? Graft them in again. Have you ever chopped off a limb and then tried to put it back on? Yeah? No? It's kind of like folks that, that church hop. It, it's like, why would you attach yourself to a body and then cut your arm off, throw it in a corner, and then come back later and put it back on thinking everything's going to be okay? You know, if you know someone that's church shopping, just, yeah, you can use that analogy. I don't mind. I probably stole it from somebody else. I don't think it's original. I'm not that good. All right. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are of the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? And then, uh, let's see, 2 Corinthians three fourteen and 15. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, that a veil lies over their heart. That's pretty sad. I mean, they, they had such a tremendous opportunity, but it's no different than today. The opportunity is still there. The veil is just maybe repackaged, you know, just repackaged. So Jesus even referred to this in his parables of spiritual blindness and hardening. Matthew 13, 13 through 16. I hope. Is it in there? Okay, that figures. All right, so Matthew 13, 13 through 16. Let's see if I can find it here. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You shall keep on listening, but shall not understand. And you shall keep on looking, and shall not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return. And I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see and your ears, because they hear. This was the fulfillment of Isaiah 6.10. Okay, Isaiah 6.10 says, Make the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes blind, so that they will not see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Here's the hard truth. Okay, And if you don't like this, 
take it up with, with God because this ain't me. But the hard truth is God has the right to show mercy to whom he wants to show mercy. Harden those whom he wants to harden. And it's all according to his desire. Romans 9.18, is that one in there, Brandon? Or did I miss that one too? Okay, Romans 9.18 says this. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. So, is that really fair? Okay, Heather says, oh yeah, oh yeah. Is it fair? I mean, come on. Is it? Yeah, absolutely. You're darn right it is. It is fair. If we cry out, it's not fair. We're contending with the divine potter who has the right to make his own vessels. You know, Romans 9, 20 through 21 says, On the contrary, who are you, you foolish person, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter not have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one object for honorable use and another for common use? God's not required to show mercy to anyone. Okay? God is not fair. He is just. He is sovereign. And he has the power and the right to do as he wishes. You will not understand the doctrine of election until you bow the knee to God and yield your rights to him recognizing that if he dealt with you on the basis of fairness, you would be eternally condemned. Okay? You know what we deserve? Yeah, hell. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is exactly what we deserve. All right, I told you we hadn't even gotten into the hard stuff yet. Verse 26 of Romans. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Will all Israel be saved? Man, crickets? Really? Come on. You've been so vocal up to this point. I'm not really sure what all Israel okay, all right. Okay, very good, and that's fair. So, uh, the, for, for those watching, the terminology is not clear. Is it ethnic Israel? Is it all Israel? You know, we've got to define the terms. And that's good. That's a, that's a very wise place to go. Well done. So before we get into all Israel, let's back up. All right, when we back up, the first two words are and so. This phrase has many meanings, but most likely it means in this manner. The idea is that as God sovereignly orchestrates the fullness of the Gentiles, so he will do with the Jews. Romans chapter 11, verse 12. We got that one, Brandon? All right. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? And then verse 15, 11, 15. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So again, does all Israel literally mean all Israel? So the early church fathers and later the reformers and their followers argued that all Israel refers to all of God's elect throughout history, both Jews and Gentiles. But, you know, the crucial conjunction, right? But 
Romans chapter 9 through 11 are some of the hardest chapters to read because they are all talking about God's sovereignty, and we don't really like that too much, okay? But in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul refers to Israel 10 times. And every use of Israel is ethnic Israel, okay? Therefore, the best meaning for all Israel means the nation in general. But what does all mean? Ethnic, well, the national, the national Jews... Again, I, I don't know. I mean, you do a word study from, from the Greek, you know, what does ethnic mean? I don't know. I don't have my strongs up here. So, when you look at the word all, our automatic default is, well, that's every, everybody, right? Everybody. But it doesn't make sense. Will all Israel be saved based on the fact that they were God's chosen nation? Let's back up. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from where? Israel. Look, y'all, when y'all run into something tough, I'm telling you, the word's going to answer you, right? may not be immediate. You know, there's still a lot of areas I'm like, man, I have no idea. And I've been studying this for the better part of, I don't know, 25, 26 years. But God will answer, okay? Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise that are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's heavy, y'all. Most commentators agree that the meaning of all Israel is not every single Jew that ever lived, nor every Jew living in the end times when the hardness is lifted. The phrase all Israel is used often in the Old Testament to refer to most of the nation, but not every Jew in the nation. Now, these aren't going to be on the slides if you want to jot these down and look them up yourself. You can check out Joshua 7.25. Joshua 7.25. 1 Samuel 7.5. 1 Samuel 7.5. 2 Samuel 16.22. 1 Kings 12.1 and 2. I'm sorry, 1 Kings 12.1. Second Chronicles 12.1, and then also Daniel 9.11. Now, Joshua 7.25 refers to, remember when Achan took something that he shouldn't have? Remember that? And he buried it in his tent, and then he lied about it, 
And then they cast lots and they found him out. And he's like, okay, yeah, it was me. All right. So all Israel stoned Achan and his family. Did all Israel show up? I'm telling you, that mountain would still be standing if they all picked up a hand-sized rock and threw it at this guy and his family. So now there's probably someone out tending the sheep, somebody that maybe didn't get the memo. All right. So that's just one example of all Israel. You know, the, the second one there in second, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 7, 5, it's when Samuel blessed all Israel. He said, bring all Israel to me so that I can bless. All right, that's just a couple of examples. Paul's meaning for all Israel will be saved is that after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, God will lift the judicial hardening and the great majority of Jews living at that time will turn to Christ with saving faith. So backing up to uh, Romans uh, chapter 9, 6 through 13, understand that only Isaac's descendants could truly be called the children of Abraham. Only Isaac's descendants, the inheritors of those racial and national promises. When you read Genesis 17, 19 through 21, is that in there, Brandon? Okay, great. Genesis 17, 19 through 21 says, But God said, No, but Sarah your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. So, as we look at that, the descendants of Isaac are the inheritors. Abraham's other children through Hagar and Keturah, they were not chosen to receive these promises. They were still descendants of Abraham, but they were not the chosen. So, why? Why are all these things kind of panning out and turning out this way? Well, because God decreed that they would. He is sovereignly, powerfully working in salvation history for His own purposes and glory. Okay? We're, for us, salvation is a bonus. Okay? For us. But this is all according to His purpose and glory. You know, we've often seen, and maybe, I don't know, when we used to have the, the Christian bookstore, the Lifeway, I think it was called, you go in there and you want to know, you know, I wonder what God's will is for my life. And there is like a shelf full of books on God's will for you. Look, I'm going to make it real simple, okay, because I'm kind of a simple guy. You know, I'm a knuckle-dragging hose monkey, you know, by trade. I'm a firefighter. That's what I do. I've got to keep it simple. You want to know what God's will for you is? For you to glorify Him and praise Him, and that's it. Everything else on this rock is just a bonus, but that is your only purpose, is to worship and praise Him. That's it. That's it. All right, moving on. Psalm 14, 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores His captive people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. In Isaiah 59, 20 and 21, A Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth 
shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. The salvation of Israel includes the coming of whom? Jesus. But as we read it in the, you know, sort of the back half of verse 26, it's the deliverer, okay? The deliverer. The salvation of Israel includes the coming of the, the deliverer. Whom removes what? What does the deliverer remove, according to the word? Ungodliness. And takes away what? Verse 27. Their sins. Jews and Gentiles are saved the same way. I know it's probably a big shocker. But they are. And it's through faith in Christ. The deliverer is their salvation. The deliverer is our salvation. Okay? There's not some dual covenant theology, which some will, you know, share. Uh, dual covenant theology is the belief that Jews and Gentiles uh, are covered by two different covenants and that Jews do not need to come to faith in Christ. Look, that's, that's wrong. It's heretical. It goes against God's word. Remember, church, there's only one way to salvation, and that's Christ. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And say, I am a way, all right? You can uh, really throw someone off and say, hey, do all roads lead to God? Do all roads lead to God? I got a yes, I got a no. No. You're wrong. All roads lead to God because we'll all stand before Him in judgment. Do all roads lead to heaven? Absolutely not. We'll all stand before Him, saint and sinner alike. Okay, so yeah, it's, you can throw somebody off that way. I love, I love using that. Gotcha. I got him. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so where is the deliverer coming from, according to the text? Out of Zion. He's coming from Zion. What does the coming of the Deliverer mean for Israel here? It Most likely that all Israel elect will be saved just prior, or possibly in connection to the second coming of Christ. You know, and this is where we're getting into the eschatology aspect, the end times theology. Zechariah 12.10. Do I have that in there? Excellent. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now, we cannot be overly dogmatic on the details, but it is possible that all Israel will be dramatically converted when the Lord intervenes to save them from national destruction at Armageddon, and then appears in glory. Zechariah 14, 1 through 4 says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. 
There, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. Have you ever looked at um, pictures or maybe aerial footage of the Valley of Megiddo? Have you ever looked at it? It is like the perfect battleground from a military standpoint. It's perfect. And obviously so. That's where the ultimate battle is going to ensue. So he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This actually comes from Isaiah 59 20 and 21. Isaiah 59, 20 and 21. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. So, what does this ungodliness refer to? Unbelief. The ungodliness is the unbelief. Romans 11.23, and I, we probably read it a couple times by now, but Romans 11.23 says, And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. But to describe salvation as removing ungodliness shows, as all Scripture affirms, saving faith requires what? It's that 180, y'all. Repentance. Thank you. Repentance. Granted, repentance is not a one and done. It's a lifelong process that is never perfected until we're with the Lord. But if we claim to believe in Christ and live in persistent disobedience, one day we may hear the most frightening words ever spoken by Jesus himself in Matthew seven twenty three. Depart from me, I never knew you. Y'all, that's petrifying. That is scary. Okay? That is scary. Last verse, and we'll bring this in for a landing. Verse 27. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So what is a covenant? An agreement, a promise. It's diatheke, the Greek word. It's an agreement between two parties that binds them together and conveys the associated ideas of very close fellowship, even oneness of identity. A good example is the marriage covenant where two become one. Are covenants contracts? Sir? Contracts? Yeah, are covenants a contract? I got pretty much. By definition, no, they're not supposed to be. You know, contracts, you can break a contract. A covenant, on the other hand, it's irrevocable. Now, do we break covenants? Yeah, yeah, we do. All covenants are based on promises. And when it comes to God's covenants, 
It's His promises that are significant. Men break promises. God doesn't. So what covenant is verse 27 speaking of? The new or the old covenant? I got the new. I got the old. You can only choose one answer, Heather. The answer is yes. That's the answer, yes. The new covenant, which is a continuation of the Abrahamic covenant, which was also an unconditional covenant based on God's grace, i.e. not on man's own merit. It was initiated by God and entered into personal faith. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. And then also in Ezekiel 36, 16 through 28. Ezekiel 36, 16 through 28. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land, because they had defiled it with their idols. Also I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name, because it was said of them, These are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols." Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. So when is when? For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When is when? Many believe that this will be fulfilled, the fulfilled promise of Jesus' return at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Matthew 24, 29 through 31. 
It says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So remember, Paul wasn't speaking to the Gentiles in these passages. Who's he speaking to? The Jews. This remnant, okay, the elect, is the remaining one-third of the Jewish race. God had promised this deliverance through the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 13, 8 and 9 says, is it there? All right, awesome. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will, and I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. We're not going to do these last two. I'll give you the address for the sake of time. Ezekiel 20, 30 through 38, and also Daniel 12, 10. Again, one of the most challenging verses in this passage is all Israel. Because even a lot of Bible-believing Christ followers, they take it for what it says. They just see all Israel and say, well, no. They're God's chosen people. The Bible says they're God's chosen people. I'm not saying they get a free pass, but... Okay, if you hear but after that, that means everything they said before the conjunction is worthless. All right? All Israel is not all Israel. And the only way that you're going to know this is through study and through you know, attendance and Bible study and sharpening one another. How this fits into one anothering... You know, I'm not sure. You know, maybe it's one anothering with Israel. You know, maybe that's how we can kind of squeeze it in there. Um, I'm, I'm glad that, that I had the opportunity to share this passage with you because I hope that I've at least given you some information that you can take with you and maybe even study further. But, look, nobody gets a free pass, y'all. Okay? Your, our, our salvation was bought. Okay? It was purchased. All right? And it was purchased with blood. And a lot of people, they, they love Christ as their Savior, but they don't really want Him as their Lord and Master. They don't like those words. Because those words require submission. So, I appreciate your time, and I thank you for your patience as you know, I fumbled through my notes, and as we went through a lot of Scripture. You know, this isn't necessarily my teaching style in regards to so much Scripture, but you had to see it and understand it from the perspective of the audience. And that audience was Jewish. We are not. We're Gentiles. And we have the Word in its entirety. Okay, this, this is the Word in its entirety. All right? If somebody says, I got a new revelation, walk away. Run away. Don't walk. Run. All right? There's nothing that needs to be added to this. It is finished. But we need to also understand the Word and where to show people because, again, our opinions don't matter. It's what does the Word say. And some folks, 
they, they'll sit there and lean in on you, waiting for you to say, well, where? Show me. And if we're not prayed up, studied up, readied up, we're not going to be able to. All right? So I love you guys. Thanks for your patience. Let's pray. Father, again, it's always a privilege to share your word. I pray, Father, that I've honored you uh, through this study. Um, I'm thankful that you have opened my eyes to aspects of your covenant, uh, which is everlasting, that I, I've had the privilege to, to share with others. Father, it, your, your, word, your word is awesome. And to take it all in, is, it, it's overwhelming. But Father, I thank you that your word is alive. It's living and breathing. I thank you that, that you have given it to us for us to study and to better understand, but more importantly, Father, to teach others. Father, we all have the opportunity with the circles of influence that we all possess to rightly divide your word and share it with others. In fact, we're called to do so. We're not called to build churches. The Great Commission didn't say, go therefore and build buildings. Go therefore and create programs. It said, go and make disciples. Father, that's our mission. That's the mission of every person that claims the name of Christ. May we be diligent in doing so. Father, please continue to sharpen us, speak through us, Father, with your people. Iron sharpens iron, just as your word says. But unless that iron is, is sharpening, Father, it's useless. If the grinding stone stays in a drawer, or if the, the sharpener you know, stays on the bench and is never used, how can we ever become sharper? This world has a tendency to dull us out. But Father, it's nights like these that we can come together and refresh, resharpen, and go out and be a sword. A sword that cuts to the quick, Father, that pierces hearts. And it's not us, Father, but you through us. And we're thankful. Father, I pray for my brothers and my sisters that are here and who are unable to make it. I pray, Father, that you would guard and protect their families, guard and protect them as they travel home. Father, we pray for those that are dealing with this terrible weather up north, and those that are feeling it here down in the south. We love you. Thank you for loving us first by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray.